From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Aisha Roscoe, good morning. President Biden says the latest Republican proposal on the debt ceiling is unacceptable. Montana becomes the first state to ban the TikTok app. But how do you block a social media platform in the U.S.? The app stores are saying that it can't work, that it's not technically feasible. And we talked to the mayor-elect of Colorado Springs. He's the first non-Republican chosen for the post in decades. Plus, a comedian went around the country tasting the hometown hot dogs. In addition to heartburn, she also learned a little bit about America. It's Sunday, May 21st. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is on his way back to Washington at this hour to resume efforts to reach a deal with House Republicans to avoid a default on the U.S. national debt. On the G7 summit sidelines in Japan, Biden met with the leaders of two key Asian allies, Japan and South Korea. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has that story. A readout from the White House says President Biden, South Korea's President Yoon Song-yeol, and Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida discussed how to improve trilateral coordination on North Korea. Biden also praised Yoon and Kishida for what he called their courageous work to improve bilateral ties and put aside historical disputes left over from World War II. In a gesture of reconciliation, Yoon and Kishida visited a memorial to the roughly 40,000 Koreans killed in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Many of them were forced to work for Japan during Japan's colonial rule of Korea. During the summit, Yoon became the first South Korean president to meet with Korean survivors of that bombing. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Hiroshima, Japan. Russian President Vladimir Putin is congratulating Russian forces for the capture of the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. But as NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, Russia's control of that city remains disputed by Ukraine. In a statement issued by the Kremlin, President Putin praised the Wagner mercenary force for what he called the liberation of Bakhmut, but also thanked the Russian military for supporting the operation. Putin's statement appeared to reflect ongoing tensions between the Wagner Group's founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and Putin's top brass over who deserved credit for Russian gains on the battlefield. Prigozhin has publicly accused Putin's defense minister of intentionally withholding ammunition from Wagner fighters in an effort to slow their progress. Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to insist the city has not yet fallen, even as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky acknowledged the nearly eight-month Russian siege had left Bakhmut in utter ruin. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Officials in Alberta are urging people to put safety first this Canadian holiday weekend. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the fire risk remains extreme there with more than 90 fires still burning. Nearly 20 evacuation orders remain in place with more than 10,000 people forced out of their homes because of the wildfires, one of the most intense fire seasons in years. To compare, officials say last year at this time just over 1,100 acres had burned. So far this year, that number has risen to more than 2 million acres. Air quality in much of Alberta is considered a high to very high risk, especially for children and the elderly. At least a dozen parks and recreation areas have been closed. There are more than 2,500 firefighters tackling the blazes, including Canadian military personnel and firefighters from the U.S. and from across Canada. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Members of the Writers Guild of America planned a protest outside Boston University's commencement today. BU's commencement speaker is Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Saslov. He's the focus of criticism for getting a $250 million pay package while some 11,000 writers are on strike. Nicole Beckwith is leading the strike in the Boston area. A commencement speaker is supposed to get up in front of a room full of graduates and shine a light on the opportunities ahead of them. But instead, he is really a dark storm cloud looming over their futures and viability of many of those graduates and the careers they want to pursue. BU President Robert Brown tells the Daily Free Press that the university respects the collective bargaining process. Brown also says the invitation to Saslav is in line with the school's policy for free and open speech. Several other schools in the region are holding commencements today. They include Suffolk University, Stonehill College, Brandeis University, Tufts University, and Framingham State. Tonight, Taylor Swift wraps up her three-night engagement at Gillette Stadium. The shows are part of Swift's era's tour, recapping the albums of her entire music career. The Boston Business Journal reports hotels in Foxborough and Boston have been sold out all three nights of the tour for weeks, at least in part because of Swift's show. The MBTA Commuter Rail special event tickets to and from the show also sold out. That includes a second set of more than 3,200 additional tickets, which sold out in under 90 seconds. The annual Inman Eats and Crafts Street Fair takes place in Inman Square in Cambridge this afternoon. The East Cambridge Business Association gathering features food stands, a beer garden, live music, and more than 30 local vendors. It kicks off at noon. A cloudy start today in Boston, then becoming sunny and highs reaching the mid-70s. Lows overnight in the mid-50s. A sunny Monday, tomorrow's temperatures in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us. Earlier today, President Biden said he's done his part to offer solutions to avoid a default on the federal debt. Now it's time for the other side to move from their extreme positions because much of what they've already proposed is simply, uh, quite frankly, unacceptable. He called out in particular Republican proposals that would benefit the pharmaceutical and fossil fuel industries while cutting back on food stamps and Medicaid. But the talks aren't dead yet. He also said he's talking with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on his flight home from Japan, where he's been attending the G7 summit. NPR's national political correspondent Mara Lyason joins us now. Hi, Mara. Hi, Ayesha. So uh, what do you make of what Biden said today? Well, it sounds like that face-saving off-ramp to avoid a default is not anywhere in sight. Uh, Until now, he was talking about progress in the talks. But today, as you heard, he accused Republicans of looking for a partisan solution to something that has to be bipartisan. Now, some of this could be performative. Both sides have to prove to their respective bases that they're not going to compromise unnecessarily. So so what are the sticking points here, though? 
The sticking points are mostly about spending. There were some other areas where both sides could see a compromise, like permitting reform, which would make both green energy projects and oil and gas projects happen faster, or clawing back unspent COVID funds, which both sides sounded like they were open to. But spending caps, how deep the cuts should be, how long the caps should last, that's the biggest spending the biggest sticking point right now. And remember, if you take Social Security, Medicare, and defense off the table, that means if you're going to do deficit reduction, you have to cut everything else much more deeply. So Biden made these comments while in Japan after meeting with all these foreign leaders. I mean, these are, are, are big economic partners for the U.S. So how are they reacting to the possibility of the U.S. defaulting on its debt? It's really rattled them. This isn't the first time a domestic problem has followed a president abroad or forced him to cut short a trip. But in this case, the debt ceiling standoff in Washington has affected his agenda abroad. America looks dysfunctional just at a time it's trying to rally its allies to counter China. Remember, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. The U.S. is the linchpin for the global economy. A U.S. default would not only hurt the United States economy, but it could trigger inflation and unemployment and a recession around the world. And it's a self-inflicted wound. And, you know, in the past, they the two parties have always found a face-saving off-ramp, but this time it seems more elusive because you've got Republicans like Donald Trump saying Congress should default. You have other Republicans saying default wouldn't be too bad. It just seems much more precarious now. Well, they didn't default on Donald Trump's watch. Um, <laughs> no, they didn't even make the debt ceiling an issue on Donald Trump's watch, watch well, well, even well, though the deficit got bigger. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, but, but what about invoking the 14th Amendment? That's something that Biden was asked about. Uh, how would that work? Well, the 14th Amendment says that the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. In other words, the defaulting is unconstitutional. And today, President Biden said he thinks he does have the authority to stop a default by himself under the 14th Amendment, But and he's looking at it. And the question is still unresolved. He raised, he raised questions about whether this could be done in time. Uh, but the bottom line is the president keeps saying will not default. Republican leaders keep saying there won't be a default. But how to avoid that catastrophe is still a very open question with very little time to answer it because economists say we could default by June 1st. NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliasson. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. Montana has become the first state in the country to ban TikTok. Under the ban, the social media platform will be fined for operating the app in the state, and app stores will be fined for making it available to download. The law was signed last week and is set to go into effect in January, but it's already facing legal challenges and raising questions like, is it even all that feasible to ban an app like TikTok in a single state? Wired.com senior writer Lily Hay Newman is here to talk to us more about this. Hello. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the ban itself. So how is it possible to ban an app in a single state? How would this how would this work? Well, the app stores are saying that it can't work, that it's not technically feasible. And the this ban does not apply to TikTok in the browser. So internet service providers are not subject to filtering out this content on your computer. This is just about the app, you know, on your mobile phone. Right there, there's a lot of pressure being put just on the app stores to somehow implement this. 
even though really the service won't be banned in Montana anyway. What if you travel to a different state? Could you then just use it? Would you be fine? Yeah, you could download it there. You could and go then back come to Montana. And then go back to Montana? <laughs> yep. I mean, it seems like if this is all so difficult to actually enforce, does that make this law just symbolic? Well, yes. I mean, I think there's a whole, that's the whole separate issue, which is that proponents of this law in Montana have said that the goal of it is to address the fact that TikTok's parent company is the Chinese-owned ByteDance and that they have national security and Montana state-level security concerns. But by approaching it in this way, they are creating this really prominent speech issue because officials in Montana have also talked about how a big motivation for this law is simply that They've heard concerns from parents and other constituents about the type of content that's on TikTok. That means that really what this law is trying to do is keep people from saying and hearing legal speech. Well, after the law was signed last week, TikTok users um, did file a lawsuit challenging the ban on First Amendment grounds. Can you talk about that argument that you were just kind of laying out, the idea that by restricting these apps, you're restricting people's ability to communicate and to share their thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this really gets at what are the tenets of digital rights and speech online And the purported concern is about the ownership of this parent company being based in China. But China itself is famous, infamous for having developed massive capabilities to restrict and censor speech online. And so, you know, it's kind of a a stark contrast here that Montana is attempting to address this national security concern you know, in the U.S. by essentially moving towards adopting the, you know, restrictive and authoritarian policies that China has uh, imposed on its own citizens. Well, what has been the response from TikTok to this? TikTok uh, has maintained that there is not technical feasibility to do this and also that their app does not pose the privacy and security concerns that folks in Montana and others have alleged. There has been reporting, though, and I think we've talked about this on Weekend Edition before, that there are real concerns about potential information gathering by TikTok. There has been reporting on that, right? Yes, definitely. There are concerns about specific uh, data that uh, like TikTok employees have had access to. It's not to say that it is completely not an area to look at. But I think pursuing it from a perspective of restricting speech is not compatible with tenets of the open internet. Lily Hay Newman, she is a senior writer at Wired.com. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Mary Strand got a lovely present from her husband, Dave, for their 33rd wedding anniversary, a diamond ring. 
It was loose, but she figured she'd get it resized later. And then it fell off at a really bad time. I was washing my hands in the bathroom and I reached over to flush the toilet. And at the same time, the ring went down into the toilet. Oh, no. But Strand's family is in the perfect line of work for this kind of thing. They run a drain cleaning business. Her husband and son rushed in with all the right equipment. They ran a camera down the line 200 feet and they couldn't see anything. And then they went and talked to the three guys at the city to see if they'd go down and check the screens to see if it was caught up in the screens and it wasn't. The ring was gone. She felt terrible. You know, when you do something wrong, you get that ugly feeling in your stomach. That's what it was. That was 13 years ago. This spring, employees at the local sewer system noticed a little sparkle while cleaning out sludge from a pipe just a few blocks from Mary Strand's house. You guessed it, it was a diamond ring. Hundreds of people got in touch with the sewer system saying it might be theirs, including Strand. The gentleman I spoke with said, can you describe the ring? And I said, I'm so embarrassed I can't. This is the killer. He goes, no, just tell me what it looked like. And I said, no, no, I know the definition of this crime. I just can't remember what it looked like. I said, it's been so many years. Turns out Mary Strand had a few old photos showing that ring on her finger. The sewer district returned the ring, a little bent, but still sparkling. The moral is, don't count everything out. Your luck can change. And you know the saying, diamonds are forever. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. And coming up in about 10 minutes, heavy winter rains in California have highlighted the need to capture stormwater and save it for dry times. Join us at City Space Thursday, June 22nd. Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford take the stage for a live taping of their hit podcast, Vibe Check. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm. Organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Boston, Brighton, and other towns. Redfirefarm.com. Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Circle Furniture. Family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. President Biden is on his way back to Washington at this hour to resume efforts to reach a deal with House Republicans to avoid a default on the U.S. national debt. At least 12 people were killed last night, many more injured. In a crushing crowd scene at a soccer game in El Salvador, the incident occurred at Monumental Stadium about 25 miles northeast of San Salvador. A crew of four is making final preparations ahead of their private eight-day mission to the International Space Station launching from Florida later today. They'll launch on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center. It's the second private mission to the ISS led by Houston-based company Axiom Space. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Colorado Springs is getting a new mayor, and he can boast some firsts. The first Black person to be elected mayor, the first non-Republican to be elected in decades in the famously conservative city. Independent candidate Yemi Mobilade took some 57% of the vote in Tuesday's election and will take office June 6th. Mayor-elect, congratulations and welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha, and thank you for having me. You are originally from Nigeria. What attracted you to Colorado Springs? Yes, I moved to the U.S. 27 years ago as an international student. My siblings and I moved because of opportunity. And by fate and faith and luck, we landed in the U.S. And I spent the first 14 of those years in northern Indiana, where I met my wife. And I landed in Colorado also because of opportunity first as a pastor and then as a business leader and now as a as a civic leader. You said in your acceptance speech and in other interviews that you want Colorado Springs to become an inclusive city on the hill. Have you always found the city to be welcoming? Yeah, so in my in my study as I as I study other leaders and admire what makes a great city, it starts with a city that is welcoming of different uh, cultures, different ideas, different even even different politics. Are you saying that the city is not there at this point? What I'm saying is that we've we've had a good start, and I'd like for us to uh, fully evolve into that. So um, the city has started in that direction. I mean, clearly, you know, electing a an immigrant as mayor is a sign that the city is actually more open and embracing of people with my story than perhaps America has heard about Colorado Springs. What I'm saying is that I have an opportunity as a leader to fully help us evolve into that even more exponentially. The mayoral race is officially nonpartisan in Colorado Springs, but there's been a lot of buzz over your win as a blow to the Republican Party. Do you see it that way? Not at all. Frankly, um, that part of the of the media messages and cycle has felt frustrating for me because that's not the politics I'm trying to introduce. It's actually quite contrary to the leadership I'm trying to promote, the new way of politics I'm trying to usher. I have been clear from day one that I'm putting our quality of life ahead of party politics. So many of us, like me in my city, 48% of us are registered unaffiliated. We are independent and we represent so many different political um, values and spectrums in the continuum. So this statement is not a statement of, again, politics, because this is this is a cancer of our nation right now. It's, it's what I call the 
the tribalism that we're seeing. And that's a world that I left to come to this country. Can I ask you, though, you are an independent candidate, but when you look at your policies, do you consider yourself progressive? Do you consider yourself conservative? How do you look at your own policies? The parts of my stories that people would say, Yemi is conservative. And what they mean is I'm a, I'm a small business owner. The way I envision government is from a limited perspective. I moved to the city as a pastor. I, I teach at evangelical churches. So those parts of my story lends itself as conservative. And then when you look at my work in his city has been to embrace our communities that have been um, so part of our community socioeconomically that have not had a place at the table of of city leadership, um, reaching out to the minority communities, the African community, African-American communities, um, and trying to provide economic opportunities and trying to serve as a bridge um, to parts of our communities that have been traditionally left out from the table that would be, quote unquote, more progressive. So I know you said that there are a lot of people who feel like they they don't have a home politically in this country. What do you feel like the movement or what you are trying to do, what would that home look like for you if it doesn't necessarily neatly fit within the two-party system that is currently in place? Right. The home is just being Americans, red, white, and blue. That is the home. And for me, the home for my city is Colorado Springs. We are Colorado Springs. That's my. That was my campaign brand. It takes all of us, not just some of us. Um, that is a home, getting back to who we are as Americans. And I think two things can be true at the same time. I think I can hold on to my strong values and still have room for others to be welcomed at the table. That's Colorado Springs Mayor-elect Yemi Mobilade. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time today. United Nations officials have been calling for member nations to help Haiti, where gangs control the streets and the government is barely functioning. Aid workers need more security to deliver assistance to the Haitian people. But countries that could step in are reluctant to send peacekeepers because earlier interventions have failed. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. There are as many as 300 gangs in Haiti, and they control much of the capital, Port-au-Prince. That's according to Ulrika Richardson, who runs the UN's humanitarian operations in Haiti. She says people are living in fear. There are people being stoned to death in the middle of the day in the streets, and children are being witnessing these situations. And you can just imagine the trauma that children sort of live with, and also children are increasingly used by gangs in their operations. She says she recently met with traumatized students who saw some gang members burn to death in front of their school. Haitians, she says, are taking justice into their own hands. She's heard harrowing stories about rape and says Haitians keep asking her what it will take for the international community to step in. One young man, he said to me, simply I was just dreaming of being able to go to sleep and to wake up without the sound of bullets. And also the fear of going home and not knowing if your family member would have been kidnapped or killed. 
Richardson was here in Washington to brief U.S. lawmakers and State Department officials. The U.S. and the U.N. imposed sanctions last year on the gangs and on those who financed them. She says that led to a decrease in violence, but only for a short time before another escalation. When the escalation happened, we saw an increase in the kidnapping. So it could be that kidnappings is now, a, let's say, a, the primary source of revenue. U.N. officials say what's really needed is an outside force, but no country has offered to lead such a mission. Jamaica is one of the few countries that has offered to contribute troops. Its prime minister, Andrew Hulness, says he's also trying to push forward political talks in a country that is still reeling from the assassination of Haiti's president in July of 2021. I take the view that with greater effort, we can see a breakthrough towards a better and broader consensus towards a solution in Haiti. The inescapable fact, however, is that Haiti needs security support. Standing alongside the Jamaican Prime Minister recently, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres renewed his appeal for an international force for Haiti. And I want to, once again, ask the international community to understand that then effective solidarity with Haiti is not only a matter of generosity, is essentially a matter of enlightened self-interest. Because the present situation of Haiti reflects a threat to the security of the whole region and further afield. A past U.S. peacekeeping operation brought cholera to Haiti, and the country has had many failed interventions in the past, so Haitians have been skeptical. But Richardson, the U.N. official based there, says that attitude is changing. People mostly want assistance because they see that, as it is now, life is not livable. And they can see that Haiti's national police force is outgunned and outnumbered by the gangs. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. California got a lot of rain and snow this winter, but one wet year hasn't freed the state or the rest of the West from the long-term drought brought on by climate change. Some areas are trying to figure out how to capture and store more rainwater for drier times. Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports on what Los Angeles is doing. Sterling Clapel looks like a kid in a candy store as he gazes at San Gabriel Dam outside Los Angeles. He's an L.A. County stormwater engineer, and he's in charge of capturing rainwater. It's amazing to see it when it's here, and, and every drop is precious, so we do our best to, to capture every drop of it. This year marks one of L.A.'s top 10 wettest years on record, and yet most of the water that flows through the faucets here is sourced from Northern California and the Colorado River. That's because the infrastructure in L.A. is great for handling potential floods, but not so great at saving water for a not-so-rainy day. This matters because human-caused climate change will increasingly stress water supplies. L.A. wants to prepare for that day. So it has an ambitious goal to cut its reliance on imported water in half by 2035 to avoid hiking up water bills and tightening water restrictions. We are trying to undo sort of a century worth of, of poor planning around water, and it's going to take us a while. 
Bruce Resnick leads the nonprofit L.A. Waterkeeper, which is the city's self-proclaimed water watchdog. He says the local infrastructure is just not set up to capture and store enough rainwater. A lot of that is because of, of these sort of twin factors that so much of L.A. is channelized and concretized and urbanized that we're not letting Mother Nature do its job of, of capturing the stormwater, letting it recharge our groundwater. And that's something L.A. wants to change. It's rethinking its infrastructure so it won't just manage flooding in big storms. It'll capture that water. Clapel says the city is investing even more into its reservoirs, storm drains, even giant fields designed to get wet. We release it and we send it down to our spreading grounds. The water then will percolate through this kind of sandy, gravelly geology here and recharge these local aquifers where later it's pumped out for local municipal water use. This infrastructure can be expanded or improved with big investments, but that gets tricky. Californians decided in the mid-90s that new taxes for a rainwater project would require two-thirds of voter approval. That's an extremely high bar, says Resnick. And so there's been, you know, a decades-long lack of funding um, for stormwater infrastructure. County officials anticipate it'll take several billion dollars to hit the city's goals to capture rainwater and recycle wastewater. Which seems pretty ambitious to me. That's Dan McCurry. He teaches civil and environmental engineering at the University of Southern California. McCurry says capturing rainwater and recycling the water that flows down our kitchen and shower drains are two of the region's best tools to cut down reliance on imported water. Stormwater capture when it's available is low-hanging fruit. On the other hand, we make wastewater all year at about the same amount, right? And so it's kind of a steadier baseline supply. Resnick says infrastructure projects, large and small, are needed to meet the city's goals. You know, residential and, and commercial developments and continuing to convert our, you know, grass lawns into little mini uh, rain gardens and stormwater capture. L.A. County invests $280 million every year to capture and purify rainwater, ranging from giant projects like deepening the fields at the base of the San Gabriel River to much smaller ones like overhauling beachside storm drains to use water before it reaches the ocean. And all of these projects help get L.A. closer to its goal of surviving the next dry spell on its own. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
Times have changed since auto workers or steel workers represented the face of labor. Today, it's Starbucks baristas and university adjuncts, and now topless dancers. Last week, performers at the Star Garden Bar in Los Angeles became the first group of unionized strippers in the country. They voted unanimously to join the Actors' Equity Association. NPR's Emma Bowman has their story. I caught up with the dancers outside Disney Studios in Burbank, where they joined Writers Guild members on the picket line. After winning their historic union election, the dancers wanted to do a victory lap. They came here to show solidarity with the striking union writers. The dancers spoke with me using their stage names to protect their privacy and safety. Lilith danced at Star Garden before the union effort and is also in the Writers Guild. And I still have to strip as a side hustle because None of these professions are paid enough, especially with the, the gaps in um, employment that happen. And it's not that she has to strip, she enjoys it. But in March of last year, she and more than a dozen other dancers were locked out of their workplace after asking management to address safety and privacy concerns they had at Star Garden. They said security failed to intervene when customers threatened and physically assaulted them, and that dancers were filmed without consent. When two dancers who expressed their concerns were fired, that was the final push that drove the group to take the first leap in an effort to unionize. For eight months, they took their talents to the picket line with themed runway shows outside Star Garden on the club's busiest nights. When it came to forming a union, partnering with Actors' Equity seemed like a natural fit, says Andrea Hessian, the union's general counsel. The concerns they had and the reasons they needed a union were the same reasons our actors and stage managers need a union. Safety on stage, safe backstage areas, sanitary backstage areas. Last week, Star Garden management withdrew all challenges and agreed to recognize the union. That reality is starting to sink in for May, another Star Garden dancer. It's so official, and I think, you know, stripping can be such an unofficial like you can keep it low key, you don't have to tell people. It's very anonymous a lot of the time. And it's really cool to be recognized in like a way that a lot of people don't get. We can be open about it in a different way. Regan, another dancer, is optimistic about the next hurdle. Actors' Equity and Star Garden Management now have to work together to negotiate a contract. We all want Star Garden to be successful. That is what we're about. The unionizing is not about tearing this place down, it's about building it up. Regan said the dancers have been mentoring other groups of strippers from around the country who've been inspired by their fight. One piece of advice she has. The dancers have to want a union, and if they don't, that's perfectly fine. And if they do, we're here to help. They're also paying it forward. The Star Garden dancers take direct inspiration from Strippers at the Lusty Lady, a now defunct peep show in San Francisco. Dancers there in the mid-1990s led the last successful stripper unionization effort and even bought the club. In 2013, though, rising rent prices forced the club to shut down. Still, like the lusty ladies, the dancers at Star Garden hope that one day they too can buy their own stripper-run club. Emma Bowman, NPR News in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. New airline hangars might be on their way to Hanscom Field in Bedford. Massport is considering a plan to build 27 new hangars there. The Boston Globe says the proposal is designed to meet the growing demand for private jets. Critics say the plan would increase carbon emissions and work against the state's climate goals. Communities north of Boston today will get an influx of motorcycles. Around 3,000 families are expected to take part in the Wounded Vets Ride. The motorcycle event benefits five Marines injured in an attack at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. The event kicks off in Revere at 1230 and includes Saugus, Wakefield, Melrose, Stoneham, and Malden. It's 61 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-70s. Lows overnight dropping to the mid-50s. A sunny Monday. Tomorrow's highs in the low 60s and on Tuesday sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Thousands of miles of underwater fiber optic cable crisscross the world on the ocean floor. Over 95% of all internet traffic carried between continents goes through this physical infrastructure, these cables. And so the internet we use every day would not function without them. Now those undersea cables are becoming part of a new battle between China and the U.S. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Prince Harry made headlines last week after saying that he and his wife Meghan were chased at high speed by paparazzi through New York City, though police said there were no collisions, injuries, or arrests. Back in the UK, the British royal is battling the tabloid press on another front. He's filed multiple lawsuits accusing several newspapers, including the Daily Mirror, of hacking his voicemails and using other illicit methods to obtain stories about him. Joining us to discuss this is media expert Professor Tim Luckhurst of Durham of Durham University in England. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I gather that these allegations date back to more than a decade ago. So why is Prince Harry taking up this fight right now? That is a very interesting question indeed. Harry has reopened the issue of phone hacking in Britain. Many newspapers 
certainly the tabloid press did hack telephones in the late 1990s and at the beginning of the 21st century. Most cases for phone hacking were brought, therefore, a long time ago. And in the UK, it's unusual for a case to be brought more than six years after the alleged offences were committed. Clearly, Prince Harry has some animus towards the media. I mean, he refers to some journalists as cut-rate criminals and sadists in his memoirs. But is it clear whether he was the victim of illegal behavior? It's not clear. And of course, that's what the court case will seek to determine. There is, of course, the complication that Prince Harry feels very strongly that his mother, Princess Diana, was killed by the attention of tabloid journalists and that she would still be with us if they had not, as he sees it, pursued her car in Paris all those years ago. Now, as a reporter and, in fact, as deputy editor of the Scotsman newspaper, I covered that story. I was in Paris and I know that the way the French newspapers saw it was that the driver was drunk and Princess Diana wasn't wearing a seatbelt. But those do not seem to be factors which Harry takes into consideration. He thinks his mother was killed by tabloid journalists and I think part of this case is about revenge against a group of people who he despises. The issue of hacking has been a big deal because more than a decade ago, media magnate Rupert Murdoch shut down one of his tabloids there after private investigators hired by journalists at the paper hacked the phone of a murdered schoolgirl. And that was a huge scandal. Have newspapers cleaned up their act since then? Yes, newspapers have cleaned up their act considerably since the evidence that Millie Dowler, the murdered schoolgirl's telephone, had been hacked. There have been a major investigation of the standards in British tabloid journalists. The Leveson inquiry, led by the judge Sir Brian Leveson, looked in great detail at the conduct of Britain's mass market tabloid newspapers, concluded that hacking had certainly been a technique which had been used to obtain stories, particularly scandal stories about celebrities, and that hacking must stop. It was already illegal, but it was widely used. So what are the chances of Prince Harry winning these cases? The case is being rigorously defended by Daily Mirror and its lawyers. A lot of the stories which Harry claims were obtained by hacking appear to have been in the public domain by other means. Some of them are extremely trivial. But there are a few cases in which it looks as if there may be a plausible argument that they may have been the product of illegal phone interception. If that is the case, it is conceivable that Harry will win. But this is a case. It has to be proved beyond reasonable doubt. And It is certainly one which is not easy to predict. Indeed, he will have to appear in court himself in June, which will be a very unusual experience for a former royal, and that will be a very interesting experience for the British electorate to watch. That's Professor Tim Luckhurst, former journalist and the principal of South College at Durham University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So many U.S. consumer goods are made in Mexico, from washing machines to electric cars. It's quick and tariff-free to ship most products, making the U.S.-Mexico border region a hub for factories. But another U.S. industry, one you may not expect, is increasingly moving to Mexico. James Frederick brings us this report from Mexico City. 
Through the director's monitor, I'm watching a familiar American scene. A millennial couple is in their neat middle-class kitchen feeding their baby. Dad gets distracted by his phone. But take a step back from the camera. This commercial is being filmed in an art deco house in Mexico City's Condesa neighborhood. Dozens of Mexican crew members buzz around an American photographer and Australian director leading the show. What's happening behind me right now is that the production designer is moving some spices off a spice rack. Their labels are in Spanish and is replacing them with little plants. The Mexican production designer Monica Bidot's job is often to make Mexico City look like anywhere USA for commercials like this one. I don't want to say that there's nothing we can't do, but we've done pretty wild things <laughs> to make it match. More and more, American and European production companies are ditching Los Angeles for Mexico City to shoot commercials, TV, and films. You've probably seen some of these ads. Six Super Bowl commercials from this year were filmed in Mexico. I'm not allowed to say which company this commercial is for, but trust me, you know the company. It's the second project in Mexico for Australian director Fiona McGee. She said she expected it to be bumpy at first. The language barrier for me, being Australian and not speaking Spanish, even though I wish I, wish I did, um, was a challenge, but the support is, is pretty amazing here. Glued to McGee's side on set is Rodrigo Urbano, her first assistant director and translator. Dropping the spoon down a little bit. The lapas? Dropping the spoon down, now stay in that position. McGee loves working in Mexico and says some things are easier here. So you have rolling sets, so if you're shooting multiple days, you're walking in to sets that are already dressed and already lit, which is kind of unheard of in a lot of other places. Behind this advantage and behind moving any kind of production to Mexico are lower costs and fewer regulations. We tend to be a third of the cost of a comparable LA production, non-union, union. That's Avelino Rodriguez, CEO of the production services company The Lift and president of Mexico's National Film Chamber. He said they've been working to bring the country up to global standards. So we made a concerted effort to train up the talent, and we grew the talent in the company, you know, and it paid off for the company and now for other companies. On this particular shoot, 97% of the crew was Mexican. But as with any outsourcing, the lingering question is what this means for American film workers who are heavily unionized in stark contrast to their Mexican counterparts. NPR reached out to several U.S. film industry unions and none responded to our questions. The other draw is the city itself, which became a destination for artists during COVID quarantine. Now you have directors that stayed here, uh, production designers that stayed here from all sorts of jobs from the creative industries that are now permanent residents in Mexico. With a business-friendly film commission that makes permitting easy, the film industry in Mexico City is running at all-time highs as more productions come in from abroad. Different labor standards are sure to be an issue. But regardless of what happens in Hollywood, more and more of what you see on your TV will be made in Mexico. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City. Simran Jeet Singh felt terrorized when a white supremacist attacked a Sikh temple in Wisconsin a decade ago. But he's taken a surprising path since then. You know, I have a turban, I have a beard, I have brown skin, and I'm often on the receiving end of people's bigotry. He actually tried to feel empathy for the shooter. In Sikh philosophy, we don't even believe in people. We all have the same light and we are able to hurt one another when we fail to see that light. 
Rachel Martin's series, Enlighten Me, continues with a conversation about bridging cultural divides. That's later today on All Things Considered. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Is there anything so American as a hot dog? They are surrounded by legends steeped in history outside the kitchen, and they put everybody and their feelings about their hometown's favorite toppings. Comedian Jamie Loftus set out to try them all. She documented her journey and the less than savory side of the hot dog in her new book, Raw Dog. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hey, it's so happy to be here. First off, I think the most obvious question that people may ask is, why hot dogs? Did you have a deep affinity for hot dogs before this? Like, was this something that you ate a lot of? Yes, I grew up uh, eating boiled hot dogs in New England, which I wouldn't do to my child. But (laughs) that is what my parents um, made for us. It was like a very like quick, fun, low income meal, which it's been forever. And then as I got older, it was like my cheap college food. I worked at a hot dog truck. I just have a lot of hot dog uh, lore. You go pretty deep in the book on like the labor conditions for meat packers, which are not great, and the realities of slaughterhouses. What do you want the reader to take away from that? It's up to the reader, but I hope that um, people who read this book, if they're still eating hot dogs at the end, which I very much still am, I can't pass any judgment there, but that they have more context for why the hot dog is considered a national symbol. And I feel like we're kind of told it's for these like sweetie pie, like 4th of July reasons. But the more I learned about it, I think the most American things about hot dogs are that it's a result of a pretty disingenuous marketing campaign. And it relies on a lot of labor exploitation. And we can still have hot dogs and not have that be true. When you go into it, I mean, like when you describe like hot dogs are made, which I think most people would imagine it is pretty nasty stuff. Um, Did your research make you consider giving up hot dogs or meat? You say you still eat them, but did you think about it? I def- I mean, I still feel conflicted about it. But what I did learn is like if I am going to be a meat consumer because I have not kicked the habit successfully, there are more ethical ways to do that than how I was doing that. And so learning about especially particular um, meatpacking companies that the summer I was researching in, in um, 2021 were just not protecting their employees from covid at all. And so I I sort of landed on a middle ground of if I'm going to continue to consume meat, I have to do it as ethically as possible. So what were you looking for in the hot dogs? Uh, I guess like from region to region, what was considered good. There's places that are really fixated on chili recipes. There's areas that are really fixated on a very special relish that is kind of gray looking but tastes great yeah because you can do anything like the hot dog is really a vehicle so i grew up in north carolina and so in north carolina (sighs) so many good hot dogs there yes we eat it with chili and coleslaw and mustard and we'll put ketchup on it but a lot of places won't the, the ketchup is optional i know in the book you would talk about places you went and the, the, the buns would be coming out of just like a, a pack of Wonder Bread. I love that. That means it's really good. Yeah. And then they slap in that good chili <laughs> that they done made and the coleslaw. <laughs> oh, you, you, you about to eat good. 
I love that that's your hot dog. I love hearing what people's hot dogs are because people get so like that was like one of my favorite things is people get so excited talking about their hot dog. Yes. Everyone has a really strong opinion on this and no one knows why. But I mean, you also talk about in the book how there are class dynamics of hot dogs. Um, like what do hot dogs have to say about class? Oh, so much. Um, I... So hot dogs were popularized in the U.S. Uh, by immigrants, mostly Greek, Polish, and, and German immigrants. Um, and the businesses started to really take off during the Great Depression. And the whole appeal of them, and still the appeal of a lot of kind of classic hot dog recipes, are that it is a cheap way to be full for a while. And you see that with the Chicago hot dog, which advertised itself as two meals in one, the salad on top of the hot dog. You see it in Baltimore, where they deep fry a piece of bologna and wrap it around a hot dog and then you don't need to eat for like seven days after that <laughs> um but it started as a uh, food made by the poor for the poor but even dealing with like those class issues and and the issues with the slaughterhouses and the the meatpacking plants there is some darkness in that side of the hot dog but what about the joy that you found along the way in the communities that you visited Oh, I mean, some of it is just like kind of weird and funny. Like I, I tailed the, uh, the Wienermobile for a while because I was like, what's going on <laughs> in here? Do Wienermobile drivers like hook up with each other? And the answer is yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what? No, we talked to a Wienermobile driver. They did not tell us any of that. They did not say that. Oh, it was really? a long, it was a long con. Not the Wienermobile drivers I talked to, <laughs> they were like, <laughs> They're like, we're not together, but we are in the minority. A lot of times when people travel the country, they write a book, they can come out with a big message about the meaning of America or, you know, hope for the future. Like, did, did you learn some sort of big truth or do you feel like this is not that kind of book? Um, I did not learn the meaning of America, <laughs> I would say. I mean, what I learned, I learned so much about the context of um, what the symbols we kind of interact with every day um, stand for and what, the, and what they mean and how they affect different people differently. And I really love to find ones that seem innocuous and aren't because I hope that it just means that anyone can kind of approach a book like this and have their own, you know, experiences and assumptions and then see how they feel at the end. That's Jamie Loftus. Her book is called Raw Dog. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. 
Stay with us as Weekend Edition Sunday continues at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at Fidelity.com slash UFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is making the rounds on the world stage, this time at the G7 summit. Find out more. And U.S. airline pilots are asking for better pay and more flexible schedules. How these negotiations could affect your summer travel. Plus, a scholar on how Old English lives in the 21st century. In Old English, the word for enemy is unfreund. So it's like unfriend. And today, unfriend has become a verb that we use for social media. It's Sunday, May 21st. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. With an early June budget default deadline closing in, President Biden called on House Republicans to move off extreme positions, pledging that no debt limit deal would be made solely on partisan terms. The president spoke to reporters in Japan at the end of the G7 summit. I've done my part. We put forward a proposal to cut spending by more than a trillion dollars. On top of the nearly $3 trillion in deficit reduction that I previously proposed through the combination of spending cuts and new revenues. Now it's time for the other side to move. The president at this hour is flying back to Washington. He plans to speak today directly with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Negotiations over raising the debt ceiling will shape the weak in financial markets. As NPR's Rafael Nam reports, Wall Street still believes the U.S. will avoid a default. A U.S. default would be devastating for markets, and many experts believe it could easily spark a global financial crisis. That's why investors have been pretty confident that the U.S. will raise or suspend the debt ceiling before an early June deadline. But markets could still get volatile until Congress approves a deal. The debt negotiations come at a difficult time for the U.S. economy. Inflation remains high, and there are still a lot of concerns about a recession, 
We'll get more economic reports this week, including new home sales, as well as more data on consumption and on inflation. Rafael Nam, NPR News. The NAACP issued a formal travel advisory yesterday for the state of Florida, pointing to what it calls efforts by the governor, quote, to erase black history. NPR's Marie Andrusevich has more. The advisory charges Florida, under the leadership of DeSantis, of engaging in a, quote, all-out attack on black Americans' accurate black history, women's rights, and LGBTQ rights, among other things. In a statement, the NAACP points to the governor's efforts to ban an advanced placement course on African-American studies. In the travel advisory, the organization warns that the state of Florida, quote, devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and the challenges faced by African-Americans and other minorities. NAACP board chair Leon Russell accuses DeSantis of putting politics over people and trying to appeal to dangerous extremists. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. Sudan's army and a rival paramilitary force have agreed to another week-long humanitarian truce. U.S. and Saudi diplomats who mediated the latest agreement say that they are confident this time that the truce could lead to a longer peace in Sudan. Speaking to pilgrims in St. Peter's Square today, the Pope called for warring factions in Sudan to set their weapons aside. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Nonprofits that provide service to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities say the state's proposed pay increases fall short. The Healy administration wants to give entry-level workers at day programs $19 an hour and wants to give some managers about $24 an hour. Sharon Smith heads Work Incorporated, which helps adults with disabilities in eastern and central Massachusetts. Smith is urging the state to go well beyond the proposed increases. We are competing and losing employees and candidates to the private sector and to state jobs. In just the past few months, Work Inc. has lost five managers to state positions, earning far higher salaries for essentially the same work. The changes are scheduled to take effect in July. Democratic State Senator Julian Sear is condemning a planned event in Barnstable with Republican Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan today. The event's hosted by Cape Cod Republicans and former GOP candidate for Attorney General Jay McMahon. Jordan is an ally of former President Trump and is one of the most conservative members of Congress. Sear calls Jordan's invitation deeply disappointing. He says Jordan peddles, quote, election denialism, homophobia and bigotry. Keep in mind, on the MBTA, shuttle buses are replacing red line service between Broadway and Ashmont Braintree this weekend. This allows crews to do track and tie replacement work and to work on the Savin Hill Bridge. Also, Orange and Green Line trains are skipping Haymarket Station to allow crews to work on demolition on the government center garage. And on the commuter rail, shuttles replace train service between Braintree and South Station and between Bridgewater and Middleborough Lakeville. Tonight in Miami, it's Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Heat. Miami has won the first two games. This afternoon, the Red Sox go for the sweep against the Padres in San Diego. It's 61 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny today. Highs in the mid-70s, overnight lows dropping to the mid-50s. Then a sunny Monday, tomorrow's temperatures in the low 60s. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England, on Queen Mary II, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Ukraine's president spoke to G7 leaders in Hiroshima today and secured more military aid to counter Russian attacks. President Biden announced a $375 million arms package and said the U.S. will not waver in its support of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is claiming victory in the war's longest and bloodiest battle in the city of Bakhmut. Ukraine says its forces are still fighting and have not conceded. Joining us now from Kyiv is NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Hi, Joanna. Hello. So President Zelensky's visit has been highly symbolic. Uh, Did he get what he wanted? So, yeah, mostly he had a couple of goals. Uh, One was to publicly reiterate that Ukraine will not consider peace talks until every Russian soldier leaves Ukrainian land. Uh, And another goal, a big one, was to secure more military aid for Ukraine, and that's something he got. Uh, Ukraine has already received billions from the West, with the U.S. alone contributing something like $37 billion. And today, President Biden promised an additional $375 million in arms, including ammunition and armored vehicles. And President Biden also said that, you know, the U.S. is doing everything possible to strengthen Ukraine's defense. And that includes something like endorsing the training of Ukrainian pilots on American-made F-16 fighter jets, which is something also that's a big deal. Uh, This will allow countries to supply these planes to Ukraine. We've spoken with many Ukrainian defense officials who say, you know, these planes would be game changers. They would allow Ukraine to defend itself from an increasing number of Russian air attacks, and they would help Ukraine make gains in counteroffensives to take back land occupied by Russian forces. Ukraine's allies rallied around Zelensky, of course, but he also made some headway with leaders who haven't exactly condemned Russia, right? That's right. So, you know, first of all, you're right to point out that Zelensky was very clearly among friends. He flew in into Hiroshima on a French government plane and his meetings with European and Japanese leaders, you know, these made headlines and there were photo ops everywhere. He also met a leader who was, has not publicly condemned Russia, and that's India's Narendra Modi. Uh, India is not in the G7, and Modi attended the G7 as a guest. Uh, Modi has not directly condemned the Russian invasion. And I should point out that India has increased imports of Russian oil, uh, coal, and gas since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. This has helped circumvent sanctions against Russia. That's been a problem for Zelensky, obviously, and for the Western coalition. Modi and Zelensky had a cordial meeting, again, photo ops and happy smiles and handshaking. Modi promised to do whatever he can to end the war. And this meeting hasn't produced a change in India's position. Maybe it's too soon. But Zelensky has indicated that he won't stop trying to win the support of countries in the global south. He wants to show them why it's important to support Ukraine in this battle. The battle for the city of Bakhmut really has become a centerpiece of the war. What is the latest there? 
So on Saturday, the leader of a private mercenary army from Russia called the Wagner Group, he claimed his fighters had captured Bakhmut, which is in eastern Ukraine. And today, the Kremlin said the same thing. And uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is congratulating the Wagner fighters and Russian soldiers. Bakhmut came up at the G7. Here's how Zelensky responded when he was asked if the Russians had taken the city. I think no. But you have to, to understand that there is nothing. They destroyed everything. There are no buildings. It's a pity, it's tragedy, but for, for today, Bakhmut is only in our hearts. So the president was trying to point out that in 10 months of fighting, the city has been destroyed, it's now gone, but that Ukrainian forces are still fighting for its land. NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kiev, thank you so much. You're welcome. The U.S. could be days away from being unable to pay its bills, according to the Treasury Department. But so far, financial markets and Wall Street are not freaking out. NPR's David Gura is here to explain why. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Aisha. So how worried is Wall Street about a potential default, or are they just shrugging this off? Yeah, we're seeing some turmoil in the bond market, less volatility in stocks. And my sense is Wall Street has been confident, pretty sanguine, actually, about this. And it's funny, I said that to Libby Cantrill, who's a managing director at PIMCO, a company that manages some of the world's largest bond funds. And Libby corrected me. She said Wall Street's preferred term is constructive. Wall Street has been constructive. This will get resolved without a default. Like many investors, Cantrell believes that Washington is going to figure this out. It may go down to the wire, but in the final minutes of the 11th hour, there's going to be a deal. One staffer on Capitol Hill likened this, the debt ceiling, to passing a kidney stone. We all know it will pass. It's just a question of how painful it will be. And, you know, while graphic, I think that's an apt analogy for this process. Pretty graphic. Uh, Cantrell was a congressional staffer before she got into business, and she says... It's in no politician's interest to bring about a default, and she's sure everyone who's involved in these negotiations, Aisha, recognizes it would be a catastrophe if the U.S. were to default on its debt for the first time in history. Catastrophe. Obviously, that is the worst-case scenario. How are investors getting ready for that? So this would be really bad. Let's underscore that. But investors and strategists I talked to were all very candid about how much they don't know about what would happen if the U.S. were to default. Again, We haven't been here before, but they're thinking this through, and the uncertainty alone is bound to be a problem. People would be waiting to see what happens, how this would shake out, and at the very least, there'd be a big sell-off. We just can't quantify how big that would be. Now, if we go back to 2008, when we were on the precipice of the global financial crisis and Congress didn't approve a $700 billion rescue package, the stock market had one of its worst days ever. Many economists say we'd face another global financial crisis if there were a default, and a default would have a profound effect on the value of U.S. government bonds, on U.S. treasuries, which are seen and have been seen as some of the safest investments in the world. This is debt held by companies and countries, and treasuries are used as collateral in all kinds of transactions. And it would seem like this would have a negative impact on the average person, right? It would cost the U.S. a lot more to sell debt, given investors would want more protection on what would seem like a riskier bet than before. This would have ripple effects. If there's a default, borrowing costs would go up. And just think about mortgage rates, which already have risen because the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates to fight high inflation. They would climb even higher. Seema Shah is the chief global strategist at Principal Asset Management. She's watching all of this unfold from London, where she's based. And she told me this is happening at a really unfortunate time. 
there are already significant pressures on the US economy. It cannot afford to have another major shock landing on its head. Shaw echoed what we've heard from economists and the Treasury Secretary and the Federal Reserve Chair and many other policy analysts and policymakers that a default would kickstart a recession and there would be another global financial crisis like the one we saw back in 2008 and 2009. You started off by saying Wall Street is basically pretty chill about this because Mm -hmm. investors at this point, they've seen this show before. They know that oftentimes Congress just kind of waits to the very last minute and then they do something. I mean, are they at the point where they just look at this as the new normal? Yeah, and they think that they know how this movie is going to end. I think that's definitely the case, And so long as the U.S. has this limit on how much it can borrow. Many of them also are resigned to the fact that this is, for better or worse, how Washington works today. And this debate and this threat of default is going to keep cropping up in the future. NPR's David Gura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Influential church leader Tim Keller has died at the age of 72. He was a founder of the Gospel Coalition, a group of congregations concerned with the direction of evangelical Christianity. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports. Tim Keller was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City who helped his congregation and the nation mourn in the days following the September 11th terrorist attacks, a time when so many were asking why God would allow this to happen. The Bible indicates that the love and hope of God and the love and hope that comes from one another has to be rubbed into our grief. And that's what we're here to do. The problem of tragedy and human response to it was one he returned to time and again in his preaching. Getting rid of your belief in God to handle evil and suffering will not help. Keller was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which announced his death Friday morning. He'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2020. His program, Redeemer City to City, helped evangelical leaders learn to work in urban settings where such congregations were less common. As co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, his concerns were twofold. First, that evangelical Christianity had become too politicized, and second, that moral relativism had gone unchallenged. To try to be relevant, but also to be timeless, that's what Tim Keller sought to do when co-founding the Gospel Coalition. Colin Hansen is vice president of the group and author of the biography Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Tim always believed that preaching the gospel and seeing that lived out in local churches was the best way to be obedient in our faith, to obey Jesus, and to love our neighbors, which includes paying attention to their social concerns. Keller was also known for working to make Christianity what he called intellectually credible. To that end, he wrote a number of books, including The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. In it, Keller describes the belief in a Christian God as sound and rational. Among the questions he addressed was this, is skepticism or faith on the rise today? His answer was yes, the world is getting both more and less religious at the same time. The tension between those two realities continues to shape American public life today. Jason DeRose, NPR News.
You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018, and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about the Black-owned news website, The Kansas City Defender. It is 63 degrees in Boston with sunshine today, and highs reaching the mid-70s. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Booksmith. Author Abraham Verghese discusses his novel, The Covenant of Water, on May 24th. Details at brooklinebooksmith.com. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. President Biden says House Republicans must move off their extreme positions if an agreement is to be reached on raising the debt limit. The president spoke in Japan at the conclusion of the G7 summit. He's flying back to Washington at this hour. Pope Francis today called for warring factions in Sudan to set aside their weapons. Speaking to pilgrims in St. Peter's Square, the Pope pleaded, quote, please, let's not get accustomed to war, and we should continue to support the war-torn people of Ukraine. There will be no Triple Crown champion this year as the Kentucky Derby champion Mage finished third last night at the Preakness in Baltimore. In first place was National Treasure. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From proven winners color choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In just five weeks, Guatemalans will go to the polls to elect a new president. But what was already a messy electoral process got a lot messier last week. That's because the country's courts essentially removed the leading presidential candidate, Carlos Pineda, from the race. NPR's Ada Peralta is at a campaign rally in Quiche and joins us now to explain more. Welcome to the show. Hey, Aisha. So, Ada, let's start with Carlos Pineda. He was leading in the polls, and now he's not even in the race? Yeah. The courts here basically suspended his candidacy until they have a chance to look at the claims that his political party has been sloppy with its procedures. But this might mean the end to his presidential run because there's very little chance that the court will finish its review before the election or before the ballot papers are printed. And there's even a smaller chance uh, that an appeal before the country's constitutional court will be decided in time. And the context here is important. Uh, This comes at a time when Guatemala has seen a huge backslide in its democracy. Most of the country's independence judges have been forced into exile. And now the political elite are using the judicial system to go after their enemies. 
Tell us about who is left in the race. So there are, I mean, there are still nearly two dozen candidates in this race. So it's very likely going to end in a runoff. But the two main candidates now come from the establishment. Sur Rios, I'm here at one of her campaign rallies, is the daughter of Efrain Rios Mont, a former military leader who was once convicted of genocide, uh, which was perpetrated during the Civil War in the 80s. And then you have Sandra Torres, who is a former first lady, who was also once jailed over charges of corruption. Carlos Pineda, the one who was disqualified, sort of came out of nowhere to ruin the plans of Rios and Torres, and no one really knows a lot about him, other than he's a rich businessman, his campaign is almost all based on social media, he puts out video after video smashing politicians, and he uses the same slogan as the controversial leader of El Salvador, that there's enough money if it's not stolen. You've been traveling the country, what are you hearing from people you're talking to? I keep hearing the same funny phrase. They say we're being forced to vote for el menos peor, and that translates to to vote for the least worst. And not one person we've spoken to is enthusiastic. In fact, we've seen candidates move around Guatemala City and they're met with silence, not even here. All the noise you are hearing right now is coming from the stage. Uh, one of the organizers spent 10 minutes trying to get people here to clap when the presidential candidate came in and they didn't. But why are people so disillusioned? It's a huge letdown. A decade ago, you know, Guatemala was making progress. Rios Montt was convicted of genocide. An anti-corruption task force, which was backed by the UN, was bringing some of the most powerful politicians to justice. I spoke to Lucrecia Hernandez Mac, who's a congresswoman from one of the small reformist parties here. And she's a doctor, so she says that at the time, Guatemala was taking its antibiotics to clear this infection of bad politicians. But suddenly, they banded together to hit back, and they stopped the treatment. Let's listen. Now they are like this gonorrhea, multi-resistente. Before, I mean, you would give penicillin and it would, you know, clear. <laughs> and then they are starting to be resistant to all kinds of antibiotics. And by that, she means that the political class here has consolidated power and the things that used to sway them, popular protests, social media outcry, international pressure, that stuff no longer moves them. And I think you hear, if nothing is ever going to change, why should I care? NPR's Ada Peralta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. Flying a plane isn't a job you could do from home during the pandemic. And now that life's returning somewhat to normal, pilot unions are getting around to negotiating new contracts for their members. On Friday, American Airlines announced it reached a deal with its pilots. But unions for two other major airlines, Southwest and United, are still negotiating and have ramped up pressure on management recently. Jim Higgins is a former pilot and now a professor of aviation at the University of North Dakota. He joins us now to explain what's behind these negotiations. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. We don't know many details about this American Airlines agreement, right? But we know that they have reached some deal. Yes, it's called an agreement in principle, which basically means the negotiators on both sides have mapped out concepts and have said, we agree to this in concept, you agree to that in concept. And the next step's going to be they have to write language that matches what the agreement was at the table. Then it'll go back to the labor union for a vote, both at their executive level and then actually what we call membership ratification. 
So every single pilot will have to vote to ratify. Obviously, the pandemic affected the airline industry dramatically at first, but then it came back. How did that affect working conditions for pilots? It was a very difficult time. Pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, a lot of folks that were frontline employees got sick. And um, many of them, uh, you know, were sick for a long period of time. And it was it was a very difficult time for sure. And then there was a lot of uncertainty, if you remember, in the early days of the pandemic. And so there was a lot of angst and anxiety that was generated throughout the ranks. And so then when things picked back up again, were there enough pilots to do? Because, you know, everybody's flying everywhere now these days. That's exactly the problem that happened. We're all happy that the recovery happened a lot quicker than perhaps everyone anticipated. But on the other side of that, it happened so quickly that a lot of uh, not just pilots, we're talking mechanics and flight attendants, a lot of other groups that help these flights operate, uh, they simply weren't staffed appropriately. So what they're looking for is more money and maybe more time off, things of that nature? That's a big one. Compensation is always a big issue. Quality of life, work rules, how schedules are constructed. Also, there's another concept known as retroactive pay. One of the questions that comes up is, hey, the company was able to get a windfall during that time. We want to be compensated for that. That's going to be something we're going to pay really close attention to as well to see what happens there. Earlier this month, 99% of Southwest pilots voted to authorize a strike. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. That's almost everybody, right? And the United Union held an informational picket. So how far are we from seeing an actual strike? Well, we know we're not within 30 days because there's a 30-day cooling off period that has to occur under the Railway Labor Act. However, uh, once the National Mediation Board releases both parties from uh, negotiations, then at the end of that 30 days, they're both free to engage in self-help, which includes a strike. Mm. Most other private sector unions are free to go on strike if they're not under contract, right? We're seeing that with screenwriters right now. The government doesn't usually interfere, doesn't say you have to get out there and write these shows, but it's different for pilots, right? They can't just go on strike. The government can interfere in their labor negotiations, right? That is correct. The pilots and other airline labor groups fall under the Railway Labor Act, which is much different than the rest of the country, which falls under the National Labor Relations Act. On the pilot side, the government can absolutely step in and stop a strike up to and including ultimately Congress can mandate an actual agreement. If there is a strike, what would that look like for the pilots and other airline workers and, and obviously for those planning, you know, to take a trip this summer? Well, strikes are very difficult. There are no winners in strikes. Consumers, of course, become completely inconvenienced. People travel for very important reasons. Sometimes it's a wedding, sometimes it's a funeral. Business people travel for very important reasons, including you know, meetings, trade shows, et cetera, to help their business. So it's gonna be a catastrophe for, for the passengers. Certainly for the frontline workers, the pilots, I can tell you I'm the son of a striker from Continental Airlines in the, in the 1980s. It's poverty, uh, it could be a poverty inducing event for the family. It's, it's a very difficult time, no winner there. And of course the companies, it can often take years and years for the companies to dig out. Their profitability will probably evaporate overnight. It just doesn't take much to do that. And so hopefully we don't get to that point. And hopefully the idea is there's enough leverage that both sides will say, hey, we need to come to an agreement. 
That's Jim Higgins, professor of aviation at the University of North Dakota. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. When a black teenager rang the wrong doorbell and was shot by a white man in Kansas City, Missouri last month, the story spread rapidly. The news outlet that made it go viral? A local black-owned website. NPR's Sandia Dirks has this profile of the Kansas City Defender. Ryan Sorrell's phone was lighting up. He kept getting DMs, folks sending him this local news story. First year at five, Kansas City police say someone inside a Northland home shot a teen in error after the Sorrell couldn't help but think something was missing, and he couldn't help but notice no one was mentioning race. So he went straight to social media. That was when I figured out the identity of Ralph and found out that he was a black child. Ralph is Ralph Jarl, the 16-year-old who was shot. Sorrell found and contacted Jarl's aunt. Then he wrote the piece that made the story go viral in the Kansas City Defender. The headline reads, this is a hate crime. Every single person in our organization is an organizer, and I'm an organizer before I'm a journalist. Sorrell grew up in Kansas City and went to Chicago for college. He was shaped by the Black Lives Matter movement. His freshman year, Michael Brown was killed by Ferguson police. Laquan McDonald was killed by Chicago police. And he felt like most media was getting the story wrong. We were always having to like beg these white-owned news outlets, ask them to cover our stories, to cover our protests. When the pandemic hit, Sorrell went back home to stay with his parents in Kansas City. After George Floyd was killed, Sorrell jumped into and helped lead a lot of protests. Out of that, he founded The Defender. We see ourselves as like defenders of Black people in our city. Sorrell says he's following in the tradition of the abolitionist Black press. Historically, that meant the abolition of slavery, then Jim Crow, and other systems of oppression. For Sorrell, it's a natural leap to the abolition of the prison industrial complex. Pretty quickly, The Defender started to make waves, especially among young people, and tips for stories started coming in. We started to get reports from people on our Instagram account that there were multiple women who were missing from this street called Prospect Avenue. Sorrell shared the Facebook post of a community member claiming a serial killer was targeting black women. Instantly, Kansas City police denied the story. It wasn't founded. There were no missing women, they said. The media criticized the KC Defender. That's Gwen Grant, the CEO of the Kansas City Urban League and a mentor to Sorrell. You gave more credibility to the police. And you're looking at this young African-American, probably in their minds, upstart who had the audacity to enter into this space. Grant also had some questions about the story. She says Sorrell's source might not have been the most reliable. But a couple of weeks later, a Black woman was found half-naked, wandering the streets of a nearby city. A white man, Timothy Hazlitt Jr., was arrested for assault and kidnapping. The victim, a 22-year-old woman, told police Haslett picked her up on Prospect Avenue in Kansas City in early September. It's not clear that the rumors Sorrell publicized were connected to this missing woman, but the overlapping details are eerie. Sorrell says he learned not to rely on a single source, but he says he wasn't the only one who made that mistake. For some other media, their single source was the police. If we took the police's word at face value, we would lose trust from people in our community. After the woman was found, Kansas City police said in a statement they had no missing persons reports for black women. 
In an email to NPR, they wrote, quote, The defender's propensity to publicize one side of an event, many times without an inquiry, has caused numerous challenges for us as well as others in the community. They pointed to another story the defender published, an accusation of racism at a local restaurant that turned out to be inaccurate. Sorrell owns his mistakes and says he's working to get it right. All told, he's had a positive impact, says Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. The Ralph Yarrell story is not known to America without the KC Defender. The missing persons unit at the Kansas City Police Department probably is not restored without the KC Defender. Lucas says by centering Black people, Sorrell and the Defender are finding stories others are missing. Cynthia Dirks, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Blue jeans turn 150 years old this weekend, and I'm not talking about that old pair you have at the bottom of your dresser. In honor of the big birthday, NPR's Jessica Green has the origin story of the clothing that will surely never fade away. Jacob Davis was a Latvian immigrant working as a tailor in Reno, Nevada. He had a customer whose work pants kept tearing. To solve the problem, Davis added these little metal rivets to the corners of the pockets and in other stress points to make them stronger. It worked. And he wanted to mass manufacture his product, but he needed a business partner. That's historian Lynn Downey talking to NPR in 2013. She says Davis teamed up with the dry goods merchant with a familiar name, Levi Strauss, and they went with denim for their reinvented pants. Denim was a very old fabric that originated in Europe, first in France, called Serge de Nîmes. It was the toughest fabric around, and men had worn unriveted denim pants for decades as workwear. Strauss and Davis got a patent and worked at a business deal to make the first riveted work pants on May 20th, 1873. And we've been wearing blue jeans ever since. When you think of jeans, you think of the sort of prototypical white, male cowboy kind of riding off into the sunset. This is fashion historian Emma McClendon. She spoke with NPR last year. But the reality is that this was workwear that was worn for hard labor. Denim had been worn by enslaved African and African-American descendants for generations. It was worn by Chinese immigrants who were building the transcontinental railroad. It was worn by women, it was worn by men, and it came in tandem with really grueling hard labor, which is often left out of a sort of romanticized view. Over the years, blue jeans have taken many forms. Boot cut, skinny, flare, ripped, low rise, high rise, even blue jean lookalikes called jeggings impersonating the classic denim piece. From coal mines and factories to high fashion runways, even the Soviet Union had a love affair with denim that was sold on the black market. 
jeans are a unique garment because they mean so many different things to so many different people. There's been a way that they have had a staying power through all of these different movements. And each generation, each kind of pocket of culture has found a way to relate denim, to relate jeans to their circumstances in a unique way, in a way that carries particular meaning. The analysis firm Research and Markets projects the global jeans market will top $95 billion by 2030. Jessica Green, NPR News. In his new book, legal scholar Stephen Vladek takes a close look at the Supreme Court's emergency docket, also known as the shadow docket. Those decisions justices issue without hearing full oral arguments and without explaining their opinions. The more you look at the overall body of work, the more it looks like the best explanation for when the court is intervening and when it's not is partisan politics and not neutral substantive legal principles. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Nina Totenberg speaks to the author. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A demonstration scheduled for the Boston University commencement today. Members of the Writers Guild of America plan to protest. Because the commencement speaker is the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, the Writers Guild is on strike and has criticized Zaslav for his policies towards workers while his pay package last year totaled around $250 million. BU President Robert Brown tells the Daily Free Press that the school respects the collective bargaining process and also that the speaker invitation aligns with the BU policy for free and open speech. The Boston Public Health Commission says yesterday's rain created a problem, an untreated overflow that created a potential public health risk in the Inner Harbor. Some raw sewage got into the Inner Harbor late last night and early this morning through pipes in East Boston and the South End. It's 63 degrees in Boston, becoming sunny today with highs in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Zoo New England, with their Zootopia Gala June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Keith Ellison won the convictions of former police officers for the killing of George Floyd. But he says ending a cycle of police violence against black people will take time. The George Floyd prosecution still offers a possibility if we muster the political will to bring it to a stop. The new book from Minnesota's Attorney General, Break the Wheel, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, 
Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times, but my favorite is he's puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, can you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Ed Pegg Jr., who runs the website mathpuzzle.com. Think of an animal in which the singular form of the female and the plural form of the male sound like synonyms. What animal is it? Well, the answer is deer, although it could also be other animals. The singular of the female is a doe, and the plural of the male is bucks, and doe and bucks both sound like synonyms. Oh, okay. That was good. So now, listeners, I understand y'all did a good job with this one. Out of over 500 correct submissions, our winner is Kieran Cahallan of Weatherford, Oklahoma. Congratulations, Kieran, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Can you tell me how you figured this out? Did you just start going through some animals in your head, or you just, you like deer? What happened? Well, uh, a combination of the two. I did start, you know, sort of running through animals and my commute takes me through uh, some many rural parts of uh, of Oklahoma, so on a number of occasions I've become uh, closely acquainted with deer, and <laughs> so I just popped in. Well, hopefully in a very nice way you got acquainted with them. Uh, yes, once, perhaps not so nice, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, well, what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle and not running into deers, and I, you know, I'm, I'm using that not literally... <laughs> I'm a uh, a wind turbine technician. Oh, wow. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? About eight years now. Oh, wow. Well, that's so you're part of the clean energy revolution. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Definitely a foot soldier. (laughs) Okay, Karen. Are you ready to play the puzzle? I hope so. Oh, you are. You are. You are ready to do it. Okay. Take it away, Will. All right, Karen and Aisha, this is a good two-person puzzle, so I would like you, uh, when either of you gets the answer, just yell it out as fast as you can. Each answer is a product or company whose name ends in EX. For example, if I said a cold medicine, you would say Mucinex. Okay, number one is facial tissues. Kleenex. That's it. Glass cleaner. Windex. Is right. Luxury watches. Rolex. Uh-huh. Now another brand of watches and clocks. Timex. Timex? Timex, you got it. Overnight delivery service. FedEx. That's it. Credit card company, informally. Amex. Uh-huh. Uh, rotary address files. Rolodex. That's it. And oven-safe glassware. Pyrex. That's it. How about synthetic fabric with high elasticity? It's good for exercise equipment and exercise clothing. Oh, spandex. Spandex, you got it. How about breakfast cereals? Checks. Checks is it. Uh huh. <laughs> and your last one is a bygone product, a tape for recording. They used to have the slogan, is it live or is it 
Okay, I'm showing my age there. Memorex. That's Memorex, you got it. Okay. <laughs> that was good. I think I feel like we both did a good job, right, Karen? Well, I definitely appreciate the assist for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how do you feel? Relieved. Relieved. That was a lot of fun and yeah, always uh thought it would be a great experience and uh very excited and pleased and pleased it's over famously <laughs> well you did an awesome awesome job for playing our puzzle today you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games you can read all about it at npr.org puzzle and karen what member station do you listen to i listen to kosu stillwater oklahoma that's kieran kahalan of weatherford oklahoma thank you so much for playing the puzzle Thank you again for having me. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Mike Reese, who's a writer-producer for The Simpsons. Name a place in Europe in nine letters. Swap the third and fourth letters. Then swap the eighth and ninth letters. And the result is two words describing what this place famously does. What place is it? So again, a place in Europe, nine letters. Swap the third and fourth letters. Also the eighth and ninth letters. And you'll get two words that describe what this place famously does. What is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. those word of the day apps to expand your vocabulary well our next guest has an app highlighting words with a twist like wrath mode as in super angry or link to adult as in spring disease i mean you know look these allergies have been killing me and what about saying things are changing for the better just say work Hannah Vidin is the old English word hoard. She fell into the language of spell studying Beowulf as an undergrad, then got her PhD in medieval English lit. And we reached out to her to learn a little bit more about this language. Hey, Hannah. Hi. So can you give us some context? What's the span of time covered by old English and what kind of text use it? Sure. Yeah. Old English is the vernacular language that was used in England, what is now England, between around 550 to 1150. And most of the texts that we have are from around the 10th century or later. And they include all kinds of different things from poetry to homilies or sermons to prose texts and medical texts, all kinds of things. And so you've got a book out. It's called The Word Horde. So give me an example of a favorite word that you have. Well, word horde itself is a favorite word. And it sounds a bit like it's a, a dictionary or a thesaurus, but it wasn't a physical book. It was a poet's stockpile, mental stockpile of words and phrases that they could draw upon when they were mm. performing poetry. And I really like that idea that you would keep these all in your head and, and take them out when you want to share them with others. Often I find I don't have a very large word hoard, and that's part of the issue that I, <laughs> that I face. 
And just like all language, there's a level of specificity with some of these that can be really beautiful. And one that spoke to us, because we do get up really, really early to think about the news and, and report it to everyone else, is a word that basically translates to pre-dawn anxiety. I'm going to um, try to pronounce it. Is it Otsiru? It's Utchara. <laughs> Utcharu. Okay, Utcharu. <laughs> Well, everyone who speaks old English right now is yelling at the radio. <laughs> who was having this pre-dawn anxiety back in medieval times? Yeah, Utchara actually appears in a poem and it's called The Wife's Lament. And it's about this woman who is has for some reason been separated from her loved ones. And I think it's beautiful that it's connected to a particular time of day. I think that's something you can really relate to today, even, even though there's not a word for it. Because yeah. I don't know, I wake up at three in the morning and worry about things. And <laughs> it's the perfect yes. word to describe it. <laughs> Some of the words that we use today are actually the exact same as Old English. And I was surprised that snot <laughs> is one of them. Because <laughs> I guess that's just universal that has gone through time. Yeah, yeah. And... I don't know. I find it really funny that a word that we don't have anymore is snotor, which actually means wise. It's actually a, a mm. like a, a nice thing to call someone is saying that they're snotor, but <laughs> snot itself does not sound nice. So, yeah. <laughs> mm -mm. Of course, this is fun. And of course, you see how language changes. But like, is there a bigger takeaway that you hope people will take out of this? What I think is really great about studying old English is there's so many familiar words, but they're also really strange ones that have fallen out of existence. And once you start digging into both the familiar ones and the strange ones, you start to learn something about what life was like at the time for people. And I think it's really fascinating for any time period like that. In old English, the word for enemy is unfriend. So it's like unfriend. And today unfriend has become a verb that we use in, for social media and stuff, but we don't talk about our unfriends anymore. <laughs> but it seems like it's an old word that would actually be quite relevant now. Quite useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hannah Vidin's book is The Word Whore, Daily Life in Old English. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A lot of movies and shows go from good to great when you drop in one crucial ingredient. like Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf in the movie Easy Rider, or Fool of Me at the End of Love and Basketball. What makes those songs and so many others so effective? Rico Galliano joins us now. He's the host of the movie podcast, which just wrapped up a series on famous needle drops in films. Welcome to the show. So lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. What makes for a particularly good needle drop? Uh, so many things. I feel like the thing that I've learned in doing this series is that there is something ineffable about it. I've asked several directors in the series why they put certain songs into their films at a certain moment. 
And a lot of them couldn't tell me, I mean, beyond the obvious, which is that they love the song. It evokes something within the scene. But I would also say, well, there's two things. The best needle drops work in one of two ways. One is when you've got a movie where not much is being directly said, where you've got characters that don't talk a lot or characters that have buried a lot and the needle drop is doing the speaking for them. And a great example of that would be uh, the movie After Sun. It came out last year. It got a Best Actor nomination. And that movie ends by using Queen and David Bowie's Under Pressure. The director, uh, Charlotte Wells, told me that moment comes as close as she gets in the movie to telling you what's actually going on emotionally for these characters. And then I think the other is when you're using a song that seems to have nothing to do with the scene that you're watching. <laughs> and it adds a layer of complexity. Atlantis sent out ships to all corners of the earth. On board were the Twelve. And Scorsese does this all the time, especially with like his fight scenes or, or sequences of violence, where suddenly he'll put over top of it what seems like an innocuous or out-of-left-field pop song. And I'm thinking off the top of my head, there's a horrifying scene in Goodfellas where a mobster gets a real beat down from some other mobsters, and in the background is Donovan's Atlantis. It just gives it that extra layer of complexity. I think those are two ways that the best needle drops work, for me anyway. Is there a song that you love where a movie changed the way you hear it? So I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and I grew up with Tears for Fears. And I've known their song head over heels my entire life. But when I saw it in the movie Donnie Darko, there's a montage scene where the camera floats both in slow motion and in kind of fast motion through a 1980s era high school. It's something about the nostalgia of it that just made me realize how gorgeous that song is and how kind of elegaic it is. I also think that you can have music that elevates a movie that maybe is not a great movie, <laughs> but the soundtrack is out of this world. I think of Belly. That intro with Back to Life, the kind yeah. of the um, acapella version. That's right? an insane scene with the black light. <laughs> with the black light and the way that comes steady. Are you ready? Uh, uh, it's crazy, right? Like it's but really good. Great, you, you know. Look, that movie is like kind of uh, stylistically. That movie is incredible. It's, it's incredible. Like, but it's almost so visually insane that you're not quite sure what's going on. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The plot's a little bit. But that's an example of a needle drop. It's punching above its weight. Do you have any others of your mind? Oh man, people are gonna kill me for this. Millennials especially are gonna kill me for this. But uh, Empire Records, which has this amazing '90s soundtrack. I didn't ask. You shouldn't have told me. At first, I'd laugh, but now. 
but the movie, I feel like there were a lot of movies in the 90s that were made because you could get a soundtrack put, <laughs> yeah. with like a bunch of hits on it. And that, I don't know if that's really what was behind that film, but uh, I do think that that soundtrack is maybe a tad better than the film. That's Rico Galliano, host of the Mubi podcast. That's M-U-B-I. And their newest series, Needle on the Record. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I don't want to take advice from fools. I just figure everything is cool. Until I hear it from you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 63 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny skies today with highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Brookline Booksmith, author Abraham Verghese, discusses his novel The Covenant of Water on May 24th. Details at BrooklineBooksmith.com. And Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Thousands of miles of underwater fiber optic cable crisscross the world on the ocean floor. Over 95% of all internet traffic carried between continents goes through this physical infrastructure, these cables. And so the internet we use every day would not function without them. Now, those undersea cables are becoming part of a new battle between China and the U.S. That's On Point, Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.